Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And we'll concentrate this morning on verses 12 to 14. But I do, however, want to back up to the second part of verse 4, begin reading there to set the uh, context. A new beginning. A new beginning. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Paul says there in verse 4, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that all all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that is preached to you. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn babes, to long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up unto salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Lord, you are good. We thank you for the redemption that you offer, for a new life in Christ, a new beginning. And even later in life, as we go through periods perhaps of drought or rebellion, that new beginning that can be found in Christ and Christ alone. Father, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would speak to us today about that new beginning. 
that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each heart here today. Lord, that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. That you would empower me and give me strength to preach your word as it deserves. To lift high the name of Christ. Because Christ said if he be lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. Lord, do your work of renewal in this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin today's message in perhaps a little bit of an unusual way. With Philippians 3 verses 12 to 14 in the background of our minds, I want to begin with a somewhat lengthy reading of one of the great sermons of all time that I alluded to about a year ago. It's a sermon by one of the giants of our faith in Baptist life. His name was Dr. B.H. Carroll. You can, uh, you can go online and find this sermon for yourself and read it in full. I would encourage you to do that, my infidelity and what became of it. B.H. Carroll is the founder, was the founder of one of our Southern Baptist seminaries, Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And I want to read about five minutes of snippets from this sermon. I'm not going to read the whole sermon, the sermon probably being about an hour in length. And so I'll abbreviate it. However, I've not abbreviated my sermon. (laughs) Sometimes you hear people say, give me that old time religion. And I know that you don't mean it. Because in that old time religion, at least in Baptist life, every Sunday morning, the pastor would deliver a sermon from the Old Testament for about an hour. And then in turn, he would go on to deliver a sermon from the New Testament for about an hour. Well, folks, I want you to listen to some snippets from the sermon of Dr. B.H. Carroll. Again, have Philippians 3 in the backdrop of your mind. He says, I cannot remember when I began to be an infidel, certainly at a very early age, even before I knew what infidelity meant. There was nothing in my home life to beget or suggest it. My father was a self-educated Baptist minister preaching, mainly without compensation to village or country churches. My mother was a devoted Christian of deep and humble piety. There were no infidel books in our home library, nor in any other accessible to me. My teachers were Christians, generally preachers. There were no infidels of my acquaintance and no public sentiment in favor of them. My infidelity was was never from without, but always from within. At 17, being worn out in body and mind, I joined McCullough's Texas Rangers, the first regiment mustered into the Confederate service. But now another event came. I shall not name it. 
It came from no sin on my part, but it blasted every hope and left me in Egyptian darkness. The battle of life was lost. In seeking the field of war, I sought death. By peremptory demand, I had my church connection dissolved and turned utterly away from every semblance of Bible belief. In the hour of my darkness, I turned unreservedly to infidelity. The Civil War had left me a wounded cripple on crutches, utterly poverty-stricken and loaded with debt. I'd sworn never to put my foot in another church. My father had died believing me lost. My mother. When does a mother give up a child? Came to me one day and begged for her sake that I would attend one more meeting. It was a Methodist camp meeting held in the fall of 1865. I had not an atom of interest in it. I liked the singing, but the preaching did not touch me. But one day, I shall never forget it, it was Sunday at 11 o'clock. The preacher made a failure even for him. There was nothing in his sermon. But when he came down, as I supposed to exhort as usual, he startled me not only by not exhorting, but by asking some questions that seemed meant for me. Are you willing to test it? Have you the fairness and courage to try it? I don't ask you to read any book, nor study any evidences, nor make any difficult and tedious pilgrimages. That way is too long and time is too short. Are you willing to try it now to make a practical experimental test, you to be the judge of the result? He continued, I base my test on these two scriptures. If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God. Then shall we know it if we follow on to know the Lord. But the preacher quoted it, whosoever willeth to do the will of God. And so when he invited all who were willing to make an immediate experimental test to come forward and give him their hands, I immediately went forward. I was not prepared for the stir which this action created. My infidelity and my hostile attitude toward Christianity were so well known in the community that such action on my part developed quite a sensation. Some even began to shout. Whereupon, to prevent any misconception, I arose and stated that I was not converted. That perhaps they misunderstood what was meant by my coming forward. That my heart was as cold as ice. My action meant no more than that I was willing to make an experimental test of the truth and power of the Christian religion. And that I was willing to persist in subjection to the test until a true solution could be found. This quieted matters. The meeting closed without any change upon my part. A few ladies only remained, seated near the pulpit and engaged in singing. Feeling that the experiment was ended and the solution not found, I remained to hear them sing. As their last song they sang, O land of rest, for thee I sigh, when will the moment come? When I shall lay my armor by and dwell in peace at home. The singing made a wonderful impression upon me. Its tones were as soft as the rustling of angels' wings. 
Suddenly there flashed upon my mind like a light from heaven this scripture. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I did not see Jesus with my eye but I seemed to see him standing before me looking reproachfully and tenderly and pleadingly seeming to rebuke me for having gone to all other sources for rest but the right one. And now inviting me to come to him. In a moment I went, once and forever, casting myself unreservedly and for all time at Christ's feet, and in a moment the rest came, indescribable and unspeakable, and it has remained from that day until now. I gave no public expression of the change which had passed over me, but spent the night in the enjoyment of it and wondering if it would be with me when morning came. When the morning came, it was still with me, brighter than the sunlight and sweeter than the song of birds. And now for the first time, I understood the scripture which I'd often heard my mother repeat. You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Isaiah 55, 12. When I reached home, I said nothing about the experience through which I'd passed, hiding the righteousness of God in my heart. But it could not be hidden. As I walked across the floor on my crutches, an orphan boy whom my mother had raised noticed and called attention to the fact that I was both whistling and crying. I knew that my mother heard him and to avoid observation I went at once to my room, lay down on the bed and covered my face with my hands. I heard her coming. She pulled my hands away from my face and gazed long and steadfastly upon me without a word. A light came over her face that made it seem to me as the shining on the face of Stephen and then with trembling lips she said, My son, you have found the Lord. Her happiness was indescribable. I don't think she slept that night. She seemed to fear that with sleep she might dream and wake to find that the glorious fact was but a vision of light. I spent the night at her bedside reading uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I read it all that night and when I came with the pilgrims to the Beulah land from which Doubting Castle could be seen no more forever and which was in sight of the heavenly city and within sound of the heavenly music, my soul was filled with such a rapture and such an ecstasy of joy as I had never before experienced. I knew then, as well as I know now, that I would preach. That it would be my life work that I would have no other work. When I read that testimony of B.H. Carroll, I think of the new beginning that he experienced that evening. And I think of that day in my own life, back in November of 1982, on the campus of UNCC, out in the parking lot where with a hunger in my heart and tears in my eyes, I was in the car reading an open copy of the New Testament and had been searching God out for a year and a half as to what He wanted to do in my life. And I experienced that newness. 
I think of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus when God got a hold of him there at noon and he saw that bright light and and he was thrust to the ground and he heard Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A new beginning. Is that what you need today? Students all over our church are about to begin a new year of school, a new beginning. I think of a couple of families in our church that are getting ready to make moves out of state to take new jobs, a new beginning. Couples come to mind also who have decided to give things another try and work things out in their marriage and family. A new beginning. And different ones in our church who in the past few years have sensed God calling them either to ministry or missions and they've begun to retool themselves to make preparation for what God has called them to do. A new beginning. Now folks, as we look at these three verses today that make up our text, we see that a new beginning is what the Apostle Paul is speaking of. Now he's just made a sweeping confession of faith that he wants more than anything else to know the surpassing power of Jesus Christ in his own life even if that means suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ which he certainly ended up doing. Now one might assume that the Apostle Paul had arrived. I mean, surely any man who wants to so know Christ and the power of his resurrection to the extent that that man would lay down his very life, surely that is a man whom we would say has arrived in his faith. But Paul would disagree with that sentiment. We see this morning that God offers us, each of us, a new beginning. But this new beginning comes at a price. It is marked by humility, by repentance, and by devotion. I want you to notice first of all with me this morning the need for humility. In verse 12 Paul says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now I want you to think with me a moment this morning of whom we speak. The Apostle Paul, as Rabbi Saul, had been present at the stoning of Stephen. He had been a rising star in the Jewish ranks. He had sat at the feet of the famous rabbi and scholar Gamaliel. He had been circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee as to the law blameless. Paul then saw was like a Roman candle shooting up in Jewish circles and becoming a bright explosion in their midst. I'm sure the other rabbis went home speaking to their families about this new young rabbi who was making a name for himself. Not only was he a knowledgeable man in the scriptures, but he had a passion and a zeal that matched his wisdom. 
And then God converted him and brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. Immediately Acts 9 tells us that he sought to have fellowship with the Christians and they were scared to death of him. And so Barnabas had to come alongside of Paul and assure the other Christians that Paul was one of them now. And so in an instant the Jews began to target him for persecution. They couldn't believe it. In their minds, he was nothing more than a traitor. The persecutor had now turned preacher. And so they went after him and the other disciples had to quickly get him out of town. And after three years in Arabia where Paul continued to learn the things of the Lord, the Lord said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And a Christian missionary was born. In fact, perhaps the greatest missionary of all times. He set about on his first missionary journey. He established churches. He trained men to lead those churches. He moved on and established more churches and trained more leaders. He doubled back around and encouraged those churches. He strengthened them in his wisdom and teaching. God called him on yet another missionary journey again. He established churches and appointed leaders. He wrote letters to those churches that are now part of the inspired canon of Scripture. He was beaten, he was left for dead, and yet, yet he got back up and he went back into the city. He was shipwrecked, he was jailed, and yet all of those things only led to strengthen his determination. Now surely the Apostle Paul is somebody that you and I would hold up as a gold medal Christian. And yet Paul says here, not that I've already obtained. He says, I'm not perfect. Perfect translates the Greek word tetelomai. When I think of that word, I think of tetelestai. Jesus saying on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. This is a similar word. It comes uh, from a verb that means to reach the end or bring something to fulfillment. Ladies and gentlemen, what Paul was saying is, I know that I've not yet become all that God wants me to be. I've not fulfilled my potential. There was a deep humility that characterized his life. He recognized that each day was a new day in the Lord marked by new challenges, new opportunities for growth, new opportunities for discipleship. Every day was a new day to be about the master's business. Paul was not a man to rest on past laurels. Now how unlike the disciples at Laodicea, Paul was. You'll remember the Laodiceans, they said we're rich, we've prospered and we have need of nothing. And yet Jesus said to them, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. There was a humility about the life of the Apostle Paul that ought to characterize every life today of a disciple who desires to grow in the Lord. It is the humility that is characterized by a broken spirit and a hunger and a thirst for the things of God and a constant openness to the call of God wherever God leads you. And I want to ask you this morning, does that kind of humility characterize your life? 
We need to face each day with the openness and honesty. I've not yet done all that God has for me to do. I've not yet become all that God wants me to be. Are you willing to admit this today? Maybe you would confess, Pastor, I know that I need to grow. I need to get back to reading my Bible. I need to get back to praying. It used to be that I was characterized by concern for lost souls around me. And I would pray for them and I would go to them and I would share my testimony and I would share the word of God with them and I would try to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, Pastor, I don't even do that anymore. I've not lived up to my potential as a child of God. Would you be humble enough this morning to admit that? Humility. A humility that recognizes that without the Lord we're nothing and can do nothing. If, it were, if we were left to our own ways, our own wisdom, our own devices, surely every one of us would be destined for an eternity without Christ. But only by the grace of God, the rich grace and mercy of God, did God move upon our hearts at some moment in the past and drew us to faith in Jesus Christ when we recognized that we were poor in spirit and there's nothing we can do to climb up to be acceptable to God. And when we couldn't climb up and be acceptable to God, He came to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Is there that humility about your life? I think of a lad that came up to President Herbert Hoover as he was getting ready to leave office. And he said, sir, I would love to have your autograph. And Herbert Hoover began signing and the young man said, now Mr. President, would you drop down a few spaces and sign your autograph again? And he said, sure son, but I'm curious, why do you want two of my signatures? He said, because with two of yours, I can get one of Babe Ruth's. Humility. Humility. A humility in Christ that realizes that we are nothing and can do nothing without Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's life was about. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. But I've not obtained it yet. Secondly, I want you to see the necessity of not living in the past. He says in verse 13 there, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. You see, true humility is not simply a reflection of the mind. It involves action. The truly humble person reflects that humility by what he does and does not do. In verse 13, Paul says, Brothers, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. A holy amnesia, if you will, forgetting what lies behind. 
I think of the man who was telling a friend of his the wonderful restaurant that he and his wife had been to earlier that week. Maybe the best that they'd ever enjoyed. And the friend said, what was the name of that restaurant? I'd like to take my wife there. And the man turned, he said, I forgot, let me ask my wife. And he turned to his wife and he went blank a minute and he turned back to the man and he said, uh, what's the name of that red flower with thorns on it that we give our wives at Valentine's Day? And the other friend said, a rose. And he said, yeah, that's it. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that restaurant we went to earlier this, this week? The ability to forget. Paul says here in verse 13, Brothers, I do, not, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. In Paul's life, that consisted of a few things. First of all, his past accolades that he just described uh, up in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. A prominent tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That was Paul's resume. That was his accolades. He was willing to let go of all of those accolades. He went on to say, I count them but rubbish for the sake of Christ. He let go of those past accolades. He didn't live in the past by what he had done earlier in life or what he had accomplished earlier in life. He wasn't paralyzed by sin either. In 1 Timothy 1, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. And so as a believer now, the Apostle Paul looked at his past differently. All of his years had been spent in vanity and pride. He now saw that he was nothing more than the chief of sinners. He had persecuted the church and in persecuting the church, he had persecuted Christ. Think of Paul being there at the stoning of Stephen. You reckon that ever haunted him? Bothered him in any way? Paul could have focused on that because after all, Satan's the accuser in Revelation 12. Uh, John says he accuses the brethren day and night before the Lord. In 1 Peter 5, it says that Satan, the roaring lion, roams about over the face of the earth seeking somebody to devour. He'll accuse you of your past. Huh. Who do you think you are? You think God can use you? Don't you remember what you used to do as a kid or a teenager or young man or woman growing up? What makes you think God's going to be able to use you? Paul could have gotten involved in that thinking God will never use me. And he could have lived with such guilt over his past and that guilt could have ruined his life. Think of Simon Peter. Three times he denied the Lord. 
And yet at the resurrection, Jesus said, Hurry, go tell the disciples and Peter too. In other words, Peter's not left out. Yes, he's denied me, but I've got a plan for him too. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, God had mercy on me, the foremost of sinners, because I'd done all those things in ignorance. Some of you have got things in your past. A broken marriage. A bankruptcy. A lie that you told to get ahead. A website that you should have never visited. A grade that you had to repeat. A promotion that you should have taken. A team that you weren't able to make. And you think of all those shortcomings and you know what you need to do with all those shortcomings. You need to let them go. There's absolutely nothing you can do about them now. Lay them at the feet of Jesus. Let Him cleanse you and forgive you. If you've wronged somebody, go to them. Make things right if it's in your power to do so. Folks, there's no, no point in living there in the past any longer. David said in Psalm 103, God's taken our sins and cast them as, as far as the east is from the west. And he remembers them no more. Paul's own people, the Jews, harassed him. He could have been so bitter. Somebody could have said, Paul, don't you just hate your people for what all they've done to you? Oh, no, 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 no. In Romans 9, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I've got great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He wasn't bitter. He wept for him. Some of you need to quit living in the past. There's some things from the past you need to let go of. You need to let go of some of those past successes that maybe cloud your vision with an unhealthy pride. You need to let go of sin. You need to let go of disappointments, maybe that you experience during times of, of trial and tribulation. Maybe there's some, some things you've done back then greatly disappoint you now as you think about your life. And you know what you need to do again with every one of those things, you need to lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, you know what? The past is the past. And God can forgive me. Quit living in the past. Quit being paralyzed by the past. Thirdly, I want you to notice the nature of Christian discipleship. In verse 12, Paul says, I press on. And in verse 13, he says, straining forward to what lies ahead. The Greek word there communicates an, an athlete's muscle that is stretched almost to the very point of, of tearing. 
But the athlete can do no more. He's he's strained every ounce of energy and strength out of his body. He's left it all on the field, so to speak. Verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. Paul was determined to live with a present tense Christianity. I thought of naming the message that this morning, present tense Christianity. He's saying in this race of redemption, I'm not going to quit until I in turn apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. As one writer puts it, there's almost a gentle violence behind these words. I want to seize, I want to lay hold of, I want to grab that for which I been apprehended each day is a new day each opportunity is a new opportunity when Paul told the Ephesians to redeem the time that the days are evil folks that wasn't simply a principle that Paul just spoke about that was a principle Paul lived out every day in his own life he redeemed the time in his own life Having left the past in the past, he thought of what lay ahead in his life. Then he thought of the Christian hope we have of what ultimately lies ahead when we receive that upward call. You see, not until we receive the upward call is the life of discipleship over. The finish line is not found here on this earth. The finish line is not until we stand before Christ at the Bema seat of Christ and give an account for what we've done. And all this has got to be personal in a believer's life. Very personal. What I mean by that, it's not something simply for somebody else. There was Simon Peter in John 21. Jesus came to him and said, Simon, do you love me? Yes, I love Do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you, do you really, really love me, Peter? Yes. Then feed my sheep. Well, Lord, what about him? Pointing to John. What about him? And Jesus says, listen. You don't worry about him. If I want to leave him around until I come back, what's that to you? You feed my sheep. You forget what lies in the past. You press on. You lay a hold of that for which you've been laid hold of. And don't worry about anybody else around you, what they're doing or not doing. What are you doing for the sake of Christ? I think of William Borden. He was the son of a wealthy American family. And he graduated from Yale University. He decided to go to China as a missionary and tell others about Jesus. And everybody said, William, you're a fool. A family like yours, a name like yours, wealth like you've got, prestige, intellect, 
William, you can take the business world by storm. You can take the political world by storm. Anything you set your hand to, William, you can skyrocket right to the top. You've had the best of everything. Don't be a fool. William Borden went to China. He loved Jesus. All he wanted to do was serve Jesus, even if he laid down his own life. Shortly after getting there, he contracted an illness, an acute illness, and he died. He had sacrificed everything for the sake of the gospel, and at his bedside, his friends and family found a note William Borden had written, knowing that his moments on earth were few. Those words that he had written said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Pressing forward. It's personal. It's personal. There was only this forward movement, this forward gear to the life of the Apostle Paul. If you visited the Apostle Paul, he wouldn't take you into some backroom library and, and show you all the degrees up on his wall. He wouldn't bring out tr uh, trophies out of a treasure case and, and talk to you about all of that. He wouldn't bring out some little case of ribbons or medals or this or that or the other. You know what the Apostle Paul would have done? He would have brought out a map of the world or a globe. And he would have said, this is where God's calling us next. That Macedonian call. That's what drove his life. He lived his life in forward motion. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul commented that he had worked harder than all of the other disciples. And then he adds that touching note, Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. What did Paul do? He finished one missionary journey. What was next? A second missionary journey. What happened next? A third missionary journey. He went to Rome in chains. And he rejoiced because whatever his circumstances were, he was around, around the most important people in the world as man saw people. And the most important city in the world. And he had a captive audience because they were chained to him and he was able to tell them about Jesus. What next? If he got out of that, he dreamed of yet another missionary journey where he would push westward into Spain. Did he ever make it to Spain? We don't know. We speculate. We could say that the Apostle Paul was a man who died running. He died with his boots on. He died fighting. He died running. He reminds me of other men in the Bible. He reminds me, for instance, of Caleb in the Old Testament. 
There Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the promised land and dividing up all the inheritance. And Caleb is there. Remember, Joshua and Caleb were the only two left. And Caleb is 80 years old by now. And Joshua's dividing up the inheritance. And Caleb's inheritance is going to be that hill country where fierce men dwelt. Men accustomed to fighting and giants. And Caleb said to Joshua, give me that mountain. I'm as strong today at 80 as I was in the day that God called us 40 years ago. Men like Caleb, men like Paul who died running. That's how the Apostle Paul lived his life. And it all started when he had a new beginning in Christ and Christ apprehended him. Paul could never have dreamed of the attitude that said, I've had enough. Having been apprehended by the grace of God, understanding now in his life that the Lord Jesus, as he died there on the cross and he was pouring out his life's blood for us, a heavenly exchange was taking place there that was absolutely necessary for your salvation and my salvation because Jesus Christ was taking your sin and my sin and all the sin of the world and the wrath of God upon himself and dying for us there that you and I might have life. And when Paul understood the gravity of that, he was never the same again. A new beginning. Refusing to live his life in pride. Humble before God. I've not arrived yet. Refusing to live in the past. Straining forward to what lay ahead to apprehend that for which he had been apprehended. Is that how you live your life? Do you live your life in complacency, saved and satisfied? Is there some sin that has a hold of your life? Is there hostility, bitterness, resentment, selfishness? What characterizes your life? Is it your passion that you want to apprehend that for which Christ has apprehended you? Would you pray with me, please? Perhaps this morning you've come to this place knowing, knowing that you do not know Jesus Christ in a personal way. 
Maybe you've either been glorying in your own perceived goodness or you've been despairing over your sinfulness. But today you realize you need to be converted. You need to be born again. Come forward. Let let one of us pray with you. Perhaps there's yet another kind of new beginning that you need. You're a Christian, but lately perhaps your life has been very little of a testimony to that fact. There's disobedience and rebellion in your heart. More than anything else, you need to revisit once again those commitments you made to Christ years ago. Perhaps there's a humble recognition that you've quit growing or you've quit serving. Today you may want to say, Lord, would you revive my heart? Perhaps this day needs to be marked in your life as the day that you turned away from some sin that has you in bondage. Maybe it's the day you need to get right with somebody. Or perhaps it's the day you need to finally say, Okay, God, I know you've been trying to get my attention and get me into the ministry or get me to the mission field. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Let this be a time of new beginnings for you. Forget about what lies behind. Press forward to what lies ahead that you may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of you.